Welcome to Norwegian Spitfire Foundation. This is NSF Talks. Hello guys and welcome to NSF Talks. NSF Talks is a podcast series aiming to dive deeper than ever before into the complexity of Norwegian Spitfire Foundation, our mission and the various of people that are involved in helping us achieve our goals and that is to acquire, restore, operate and uh, maintain Spitfire. Spitfires. Well, Summer is almost over here up north and we in the NSF were back after a summer holiday. I hope everyone had a good time and enjoyed your holidays. Uh, so for today's podcast, we have a special treat for you guys. Um, we will be talking to a pilot with lots of Wardbird experience and other experience as well. He lives in Sula in Norway. He's married with three children. Uh, he has a background in uh, the Norwegian Air Force as well as a career in both Norwegian Air Shuttle and Sterling. He's educated at Cranfield University and is a member of the Royal Aeronautical Society. He's on a daily basis working as an instructor at Sola as well as being the chief pilot on Biltema's Spitfire and P-51 Mustang. He's flown types like the Safir, Chipmunk, Tiger Moth, Cornell, Stearman, Harvard, and as mentioned, Spitfires and Mustangs. And he's also a board member of uh, Norwegian Spitfire Foundation. So uh, please uh, welcome Espen Kjetlam. Thank you, Torido, and uh, very good to be here. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, looking at uh, that that uh, bio, uh, I mean, uh, you're not that uh, older than me, um, a few years perhaps. And I'm like, whoa, um, and that brings me to uh, my my first question, like how how did all this start and, and when did you take an interest in, in aviation? Yeah, I've always been interested in um, technical stuff. Uh, and actually it started with model railways, um, which eventually um, after my dad uh, dragged me on to an air show, here at Stavanger, uh, I got hooked on airplanes, and um, and I, I asked him uh, if I were to take my model railroad uh, venture uh, over to to uh, things with wings. Uh, what should that be? And he said uh, I should model the Spitfire because that's the most beautiful aircraft in the world. So right. uh, and uh, and that was the age of thirteen, I guess. So that was back in the the 80s or something like that, or the 90s. Yeah, it's just uh, 89 or 90, I think. Um, was that an air show at Sula or was it at Gardermoen or? Yeah, it was a local air show here um, uh, by the uh, by the Norwegian Air Force. Yeah. Okay. So just talk us through your your teenage years. Uh, did you build models and and uh, yeah. Yeah, I did. Um, I did uh, plastic models and, and uh, radio-controlled models, um, and um, eventually this led me over to the uh, technical college um, in aeronautical engineering, 
uh, and I I built models and learned about uh, aircraft simultaneously and um, sort of um, this one led one thing led to the other and uh, here I am. Okay, um, did you bring this so in, into your education and 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 doing that bit when you were a teenager and a young adult? Yeah, actually I did. Uh, and I, I, one of my co-students, uh, he um, he had a, a book which um, had most of the popular World War II aircraft in the, uh, drawings in 172 scale, and um, and I I used the old overhead system that we had in those days uh, with um, uh, with a, a printed sheet. Onto the blackboard, and I, I drew a, a Spitfire in one uh, to seventh scale with the intent of flying it uh, one day. So I got back to my my workshop at my house with my parents, and I started working and, and buying a lot of uh, a lot of wood, <laughs> and uh, so uh, yeah. Um. I, I do remember because I, I was doing the same thing uh, back then, building these plastic models. Um, and then I, I, I was often, I, I wasn't sure if I liked Airfix or Revel or because there were two like companies um, sort of fighting a little bit, on, uh, you know, for the market shares. Um, any thoughts on, on, on those types of, uh, yeah. of companies? In the early days, I tend to, to, to stick with the Japanese. Um, uh, brands, um, but nowadays I think Airfix Matchbox uh, has improved a lot. Um, so I'm sort of doing that still. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which sort of it, it's sort of one of my last questions, but uh, since we're talking about it, because I I see uh, on Facebook that you've taken a you know an interest in. In the Bouchon, the Hispano Bouchon. So, so uh, take us through through that project. Yeah, um, you know, um, uh, obviously, um, I haven't experienced uh, the real Battle of Britain, but but uh, we we saw the motion pictures. I think which was casted in 1968, and uh, for a, a young uh, aviation World War II enthusiast, it was. Uh, really breathtaking uh, to to take part in that play, which was real aircraft, not like we see today with a lot of uh, computer graphics. Uh, you knew it was flown by real aircraft with real pilots. Uh, and the shortage of 109s led to the to the contract with the, with the Spanish Air Force, which was uh, sort of um, getting rid of their Bouchons, which was a uh, 109 G2 model um, license built by by um, Hispano Aviation, um, and f uh, I think it was 200 aircraft which flew in the in the Spanish Air, Air Force. Uh, so for me, uh, I think that the Merlin 109 Fusion was uh, a, a beautiful creature, and um, and um, uh, I instantly liked the aircraft. Uh, I know, I know there are a lot of opinions on, on this topic, but, but um, uh, and as a modeler, you couldn't actually find any Bouchons because it's it's very rare. 
and uh, modelers tend to want the real stuff with a Daimler-Benz engine. So um, I started making a lot of um, uh, chopping off noses of, on Spitfire uh, aircraft and trying to put them together and uh, yeah, a lot of work to, to make it look like something which could look like a Bouchon. And, um, and this has evolved um, the last six or seven years where I've, uh, with all the 3D technology and I, I have a contracted design um, bureau which uh, which does all my design work um, and, and I now sell the uh, the, um, the Bouchon in, in um, through my shop uh, which is now a, a professional uh, way and it's very accurate and, and it looks just just right. So, so if, if I want to go and purchase myself one of these Bouchons, where do, where do I go? Oh, you can actually visit my, my shop, which is bouchonscalemodels.com, um, uh, which is best for me, but you can find it at Hanans, uh, various shops around the world. Um, I, I have uh, customers from Australia to the US to um, Taiwan, uh, R Russia, all over, so um, um, so uh, it should be, uh, and of course you can buy it on eBay, of course. Yeah. Right, right. Um, I think I know one of the other guys you've been uh, you've been working with. Um, don't know his name, uh, for, forgot his name, but because uh, uh, that's why that's why I've been uh, been working on on this uh, for a while. So uh, yes, so let's just just go back a little bit because uh, you mentioned that you've been. Uh, in the in the Norwegian Air Force. Uh, so what was that like? It was very good. And um, I, I have to pause for one minute now because I think our um, <laughs> the lady of the house here at work has turned on the alarm. So uh, <laughs> could you could you entertain the uh, the guests for a minute and I'll just uh, yes, pop yes, out indeed. for one minute. So, so this is live <laughs> podcasting. So yeah. so. Uh, <laughs> so what happened now is that, uh, well, like he said, that um, someone just put put the alarm on, so he just have to um, oh, pause that or or stop that alarm. So, so I was about to talk to him about the uh, uh, his involvement with the Royal Norwegian Air Force, uh, and he, since he's since he's not here, I'm going to go through some of our other topics. Um, I'm going to ask him about because uh, he's been flying uh, passenger jets for uh, Norwegian and so on. And I personally very interested in learning more about the process of becoming a Mustang pilot, uh, which I know that he's been uh, that he did uh, a few years back. And I'm also going to talk a little bit about uh, All right. speed farts. So yes. So, yeah. <laughs> I have bought myself another two hours. So good. <laughs> <laughs> We're safe. Good. Uh, yes, um, I was about to ask about the Air Force. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, of course, when you're young and you don't have a lot of um, experience and uh, you don't know um, what life brings, um, I guess you're very dependent on um, good advices. So I was advised to, to continue my education in the Air Force. So I went to um, 
Luftforsvarets tekniske skolesenter, which is the technical training center in Norway for in the Air Force. And uh, I'm sorry, I, I've been running, so I'm a bit short of breath, but um, but this was a fantastic place. Um, I specialized in electronics and did my um, um, sort of uh, uh, basic military training and um, and um, a lot of training in in uh, mock-ups and, and simulators and eventually uh, a bit on the F-16 in the Air Force. Um, fantastic place, lots of good memories. Um, and um, and then my my sort of uh, tour of duty was at Anoya Air Force Base in northern Norway, uh, where I was uh, aircraft engineer on the P3 Orion, uh, which uh, uh, patrols the the North Sea uh, close to the Russian border uh, every day, uh, which was a very interesting uh, uh, concept. How long uh, did this go on for you, uh, being in the Air Force? I was in the Air Force in, in four years. Uh, uh, and um, I could have been there longer because I enjoyed it so much. But but I have um, I had started on the on the PPL, a private pilot license. And there wasn't really a uh, an aircraft to fly up there. Um, uh, I, I brought the Sub Sophia on a couple of occasions, flew there for two weeks, and uh, a lot of guys wanted to to uh, come along and experience flight. So, so that was good. But there wasn't any um, daily flying, so to speak, and uh, so so I've moved down south again to um, to get a lot get the hours going. Yeah, on your PPL. Yes. Yeah, on my PPL yeah. and okay. eventually CPL and, and so on. Okay, so because uh, you did, you then become um, you know t take a job as a a captain or or um, not a captain but flying at least uh, uh, with Norwegian or did you fly someone else's company first? Or? Yeah, uh, it's a mix of very hard work and uh, a bit of luck, I guess. Um, when I moved down south, I. Um, I was um, offered a job as an aircraft engineer in in Broughton Safe, which was a a very um, household name in aviation business in Norway. Uh, mainly domestic and European air travel, um, and I worked there for uh, a couple of years. And I was offered a um, and I'm I was doing um, PPL instructions, aerobatic instructions as well during that time. And I was offered a, a job as a, a ground instructor in Norwegian, which on one on one conference uh, led me into a conversation with a representative of Sterling Airways. And uh, when I got back at the office uh, after this conference, I dropped this person a, a mail and I got a reply. This was on a Wednesday and they wanted to me um, or they wondered if I could start on Friday on a first officer job and right. uh, I was going to a concert on Saturday so it didn't really fit in 
So I, I postponed my my uh, first day at Sterling Airways until Monday. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it was really moving fast. Um, and I was there, wonderful company, wonderful people. Um, lots of good memories uh, for about 13, 14 months. And then I moved back to Norwegian because uh, Sterling was a, a Danish um, carrier with um, um, it's easier to be in a Norwegian company with uh, all the legislation and and taxes and everything. I'm not um, super knowledgeable on these airlines, but what happened to Sterling? Um, they um, they had some growth um, and um, uh, at that time uh, um, uh, shipping. Um, name in in Norway called Fred Olsen owned uh, at least the majority of Sterling Airways, and at some point he he um, he sold this company to to Icelandic uh, owner, and uh, with all the financial crisis, uh, this uh, all the economy in Iceland was the pull uh, plug was pulled on the. On the Icelandic company, uh, sorry, uh, economy, and um, and that was the downfall of Sterling Airways. Right, right, okay. Yeah. So was this back in the the two thousands or? Uh... Yeah, mid two thousands, I yeah. think. Yeah, maybe. So I, I, yeah, I remember I remember the the airline, and I think I flew it in once too. So, but during during this time, did you did you already start to fly? Uh, these aircraft that you uh, list, uh, like the the Chipmunk or the Tiger Moth and the Cornell, like when when did that happen? Yeah, it happened um, when I moved to Oslo uh, with a ground instructor uh, job. So uh, I I uh, I got a deal with Norwegian uh, at that point, and uh, which said I could work. Uh, I had normal working hours, office hours, but I could work. I could start work uh, two hours earlier and continue my work two hours beyond uh, the reg regular office hours. And um, I could later on take that period and take a week off. Um, and then I uh, completed my, my CPL instrument training. And I also did a lot of instruction uh, on Kjellar outside Oslo uh, in Nedre uh, Romerike Flyklub, which is a major um, major uh, flying club uh, near Oslo um, and there I got acquainted by the uh, captain Tiger Moth, Cornell um, uh, and Chipmunks and yeah, Cub, yeah. Any, any, any thoughts about for example flying the Tiger Moth for the first time? Do you remember any specifics from, from you know, being able, being able to fly one of those classic aircraft. Yeah, um, it's um, the flying qualities is uh, a bit odd compared to to other standards. Uh, it's not a very in trim aircraft, so you have to fly it all the time, and um, uh, and due to the to the shape of the wing tank, it provides a very strong downwash, 
down to your neck because you're sitting in the back. So um, uh, I found it quite wise to to uh, use a lot of clothing around my neck because otherwise I'm going to look like a, a statue for a couple of weeks. <laughs> so, uh, but besides that, it's 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 very enjoyable because you get to fly to all those uh, smaller um, airfields with grass and. Um, it's really something compared to to larger airports and yeah it's not it's not an enjoyable aircraft to fly at an, at the larger airports it's mainly to 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 try to figure out a, a nice little location and and go from place to place yeah just, 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 uh, just remember the one question that I have to ask. And it, since you're an instructor, and then I'm sure you have a lot of, of different types of, of students that want to learn to fly. Um, does it come natural to some people, or, or is it like, do most people have to learn the hard way, or, or is it like, a, when people play an instrument and then you say like, oh yeah, this is this guy's a natural. Uh, yeah. What's it like? Um, you, you. Um... Uh, you quite quickly uh, realizes uh, if it's a natural uh, pilot or not. Uh, but most pilot can be can be taught uh, even to, to to and to get a good foundation for for further um, development of their own skills and and so on. Uh, but you you very rapidly um, discover if it's uh, if it's a real talent yeah right right okay so uh jumping back again um you've flown the tiger moth um you've flown what, what's it like flying uh the chipmunk for example well when when you've flown the um, let's say the the sub sophia which is a uh, which is an excellent training aircraft um and and also the tiger moth it's it's quite easy to fly a chippy <laughs> It's, it's it's no big deal actually. Um, so I, I flew the chipmunk and the and the Cornell after I flew the uh, after I flew the the, um, uh, the cub and the tiger moth and okay. the Sophia obviously. Right. So um, so it's it's not a major aircraft. Uh, it's not a it's not a very difficult aircraft, but it's a very it's a very basic and, and, and good aircraft because you can do all sort of stuff with it. And it has an enclosed cockpit, which you can fly all year, all year round with the aircraft. So uh, it's a bit cold in the winter in the Tiger Moth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I also, because I'm, I'm going to get to the, the Mustang part, because I'm, I'm sure that a lot of people uh, would like to know about that part. but. Um, there's also Cranfield, uh, which I do not know that much about, uh, sorry to say, but uh, could you talk a little bit about um, that side of, of your career? Yeah, um, I, I got acquainted with uh, with um, local people here with, with quite some substantial aeronautical um, uh, background and, and education. And uh, they advised me on, on taking my career to another step, and um, and, and and Cranfield, with all its history, um, seemed very tempting. Um, and um, 
uh, and I was sort of uh, looking for a way to expand my my horizon. So uh, so I went on the uh, airworthiness uh, master degree program uh, at Cranfield, which was uh, very broad and um, and very good. Did you did you live in England or or did you? No, I, I commuted. Um, um, uh, the course consists of uh, ten modules, which is uh, broken down to to one week per module. So um, so I went there for for ten weeks over a period of uh, four years, uh, and I I completed my my um, MSc uh, last autumn. Right. Congratulations. Not that long Thanks. ago. <laughs> no, it's quite fresh. So with these, with the decades going by, um, were you interested in the historical side of, of aviation at all uh, with uh, 331 and 332 squadrons in, in Britain? And uh, did you read any books you know, from, from that side of things? Sir? Yeah, uh, I've read the, the major um, um, Norwegian books on the topics. Uh, Marius Eriksson, Sven Heglund, um, and and now I'm reading uh, First Light uh, with Jeffrey Wellen. Yeah, that's a very good a book, book. Just have to say, extremely yeah. good book. Yeah, extremely good book and yeah. um, highly recommended. So I was just uh, I found myself in my couch a couple of days ago where he describes uh, um, um, a, a dogfight with a 109 and he's out of ammo. And he's trying to outfly this 109 to 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 survive, basically. Uh, and uh, it was quite intense. <laughs> it it was intense moment as a reader to 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 experience that. Uh, he is is a very good good writer. Was a very good writer. Yeah, uh, I remember uh, reading this book. Oh, it's it's quite some time ago now. Maybe 2008 or nine or something like that. Yeah. And he came up to me. Uh, this is like a side story to it, to it all. But he came up. Jeffrey uh, Wellum came up to me at Oxford. I think it was in 2012 and stuff. And I was totally awestruck by this 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 old man coming and asking for directions because so, so I wasn't able to tell him anything about what was going on. So someone else answered. But uh, you know that was a vivid memory for me, uh, being able to be so close to one of those uh, uh, those Battle of Britain heroes. So. Yeah. Yes, so um, I think the first time that I, I saw you uh, on Facebook or online was you were in the in the cockpit of a P-51 Mustang, apparently uh, having flown solo. So um, I think I, I got a message from someone because I, I did promote this 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 podcast a little bit and I'm not sure if they, they thought it was you or uh, but someone said like you have to if it's flown in a warbird, you have to ask what was it like going through the process of of flying and, and soloing on the P-51 Mustang. So you have to talk a little bit about this. Yeah, um, um, I had a I had a, um, reached a certain point uh, where I I had to make a decision whether I was uh, uh, whether I was uh, taking this uh, warbird flying to a, a higher level. And um, uh, and a friend of me, uh, which uh, we now operate the Bill Tema Mustang and Spitfire together, 
um, we we went over to to Stallion 51 in Florida, and we flew their um, checkout training program. Uh, we were not allowed to to solo the aircraft, uh, so I did that a couple of years later on the um, uh, on Sean Patrick's uh, Mustang. Uh, which was uh, an incredible feeling because uh, it, it's really something when you you're up there alone with the with the machine, and uh, you don't have anyone to rely on. You can look at the at the back seat, but it's it's empty. You know, you're all by yourself, and uh, um, I think that sharpens your senses. And, and I've never flown a bad first solo because uh, I wouldn't call it anxiety but you're a bit tense but I think it sharpens your senses and and um, actually the, the first solo flight is uh, it's a quite nice experience uh, always been very pleased after completing such a, such a flight uh, so what was it like just just taking off in a Mustang for the first time, you know, with or without an instructor. Yeah, um, as I said, the, the the program is quite extensive. So they, they put you in the back seat uh, on the first, and you basically fly all all the missions uh, from the back seat on the first ride. Uh, on the first ride, and um, yeah, you're just hanging on to the stick, I guess. And uh, but uh, then you realize this, this is just a fantastic, robust aircraft which can do about anything. Um, and um, um, I remember that we had uh, we flew together. We we took off in in um, uh, formation and we landed uh, quite not in formation but but at the same time, five minutes, 10 minutes separation, I guess. So we were both, uh, me and Reininge was just two happy Norwegians in the, uh, with two, uh, two blue-nosed aircraft, you know, uh, flying around and, uh, and uh, yeah, doing all kinds of maneuvers. Uh, yeah. What, what year was this? 2000 and... 2014, yeah. 2014, okay. Yeah. Right, right. And um, um, uh, I, ha I had been thinking about this for uh, many years, but, but my, my aim all the time was on the Spitfire. Um, and I um, scratched my head many times on how to, to be able to do such a thing. And um, um, a fellow here in Stavanger um, said that uh, Boltby Flight Academy uh, was doing um, was doing um, uh, conversion courses onto the Spitfire, uh, and it was just uh, very expensive. Uh, but then I noticed that uh, you could actually cut the course in two, in half, if you had similar training. Uh, and then I went to to check up on Stallion Fifty One, and I with a very favorable um, um, uh, the US dollar was very favorable to Norwegian kroner at that point 
Um, uh, so I, I think I made a bargain in that way, but still it's very expensive. But I actually, compared to the first price for the full course on the Spitfire, I ended up with the same price for two similar aircraft. So I, I was actually quite pleased with that. And then you went on with Voltby, um, and you have been flying Spitfires as well. So, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Because I, I, oh, was this back in 2015, and I, uh, I was at Oxford with with Lars Ness, and yeah. I think he had just flown his first flight in a Spitfire, and he said like. I can't get that flight out of my head. So what was it like for you to, to go from the Mustang and, and to the Spitfire? Um, uh, it's, a, it's a much easier aircraft. It's much much simpler aircraft than the Mustang. Um, bearing in mind that it's it's uh, been designed uh, one generation earlier. Uh, so it's a fairly uh, simple cockpit. Uh, with a low wing loading wing, uh, so you can really throw that aircraft around the sky without uh, being afraid of it will flick or anything. Uh, um, and it has the same blind flying panel as on the Sub Sophia. So, um, and I, I think I've must built uh, uh, between 50 and 100 models of that Spitfire cockpit. So. <laughs> it all, everything sort of um, was where it should be uh, with controls and everything. I've seen the numerous of videos with uh, Ray Hanna and Shuttleworth Collection and, and other organizations. Um, so um, so uh, it was a real pleasure uh, to to finally do it. And I flew with an excellent guy, um, uh, Pete Kinsey, which is also, uh, I'm not sure if he's still uh, chief pilot of the of the fighter collection, but at least he was then. Uh, very nice guy, yeah. Good, good. So, so this was your Spitfire flight, was that in, in 14, 15? Uh, it was in 14 as well. So and That was in 14 as well? Yeah. So both aircraft at the same year. Yeah. <laughs> That's very cool. And, uh, and you, you, said, yeah. yes, you, you, said, you said a little bit about it, but you know, in comparison, because I know that because there's a lot of, of you know these aviation nerds and they, they're very interested in how these two compare, you know, with the Mustang and the Spitfire and and any other thoughts on, on you know comparing those two? Yeah. Um, the Spitfire is, is lighter than the Mustang, um, quite quite significant. Uh, so given the same engine on both aircraft, uh, the Spitfire will at least initially outclimb the Mustang. But with the uh, um, uh, laminar flow airfoil of the Mustang wing, it will uh, accelerate faster uh, above a given speed than the Spitfire. So actually uh, the Mustang will outdive the Spitfire. But then again, with the low wing loading, um, uh, the Spitfire can take, can make uh, tighter turns than, than uh, uh, and I think the Spitfire can outturn anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Was this the same 
period as when you got involved with the Norwegian Spitfire Foundation, or how did that happen? Yeah, it's it's more or less at the same time because um, uh, there was an air show, I think, in Haugesund the same year, um, and I heard that the, the um, uh, Norwegian Spitfire Foundation Harvard was going there. And uh, I asked around because I, I, I've been uh, involved in that Harvard before uh, or pre-Norwegian Spitfire Foundation. So I asked around if he could make a slight detour, detour in the Stavanger area before heading to, to Haugesund. And, um, and I flew with Lars Ness uh, at the local flight uh, here in Stavanger, a little bit of formation. Um, with the sub um, and um, and we talked about uh, a smaller air show local here uh, where I was the air show director um, and we talked about having the Harvard over again so I, I flew the Harvard two times that year um, and uh, then Lars later asked me if I would become more involved in the NSF uh, doing manuals, um, uh, organize air show for the NSF, um, and uh, I accepted and it was a real adventure. And you, you've been a part of NSF ever since? Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, you've been involved with air shows, and uh, I know that Eddie Kostnitsche has also been, you know, involved. But uh, what's that like? What's what's it like trying to organize an air show? Uh, it's a lot of planning, uh, you know. Um, uh, air show in Norway is is nothing compared to the UK or other large nations. It's um, it's a few uh, through the year, maybe four or five air shows in Norway through the season, which is very short as it is. It's mainly from May to September, um, and um, uh, of course a lot of planning. Everything is volunteer work. Uh, there's no professional air shows in Norway. It's it's based on on uh, on volunteers. Uh, and in sometimes um, even the, the guys flying the aircraft um, are volunteers with their aircraft. So um, so it's um, uh, it's a very tiny, fragile operation in Norway, but it, it can be very good. And and a couple of times we've had the, the local airport authorities asking us to, to have an air show, uh, and they provide all the economical um, conditions. And um, and then we have a two-year, two-days event. Continuing on just a little bit, I see that time flies. Um, uh, just want to know if you have any any memories from, because uh, I, I spoke to both Knut and I've spoken to Eric and Lars about this, and that's the the Rolf Arne Berg event from 2017. So, uh, any fond memories from that event? Yeah, it was. Um, I think it was a, 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 an achievement uh, made by all persons involved. Uh, it. Um, we managed to have both the, the um, uh, a Spitfire and and the Mustang um, up to Norway, 
um, and it flew on air shows in here in Stavanger and in Arendal, Gullknapp, and also at Kjeller. Um, and um, some other air shows along the along the route uh, to 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 get the financial uh, stuff in place. So um, uh, and with these aircraft, you don't you don't just fly them across Europe from A to B uh, unlimited. You have to to um, apply for overflight permission because they're not certified in accordance with the European rules. So uh, there's a lot of bureaucracy involved when you <laughs> when you try to get these aircraft flying from one country to another. So um, yeah. With with uh, you know air shows and events in mind and uh, the COVID situation hopefully being under control soon, what do you see for you know, air shows in, in, in Norway and even in Europe, uh, you know, for the future? Well, let's just hope and pray that we're back to normal in, in um, when the season kicks off in, let's say, April next year. And um, maybe there are some restrictions, but I, I see that some UK operators now um, run their shows uh, more or less as planned. Let's just hope that people are uh, get their vaccines and um, um, can gradually get this back to normal again. Um, besides that, I don't have any. Uh, I'm not a miracle man. <laughs> I'm just a, uh, I'm just a guy with hopes. So just we'll just have to hope for the future. Yeah. Um... Yes, um, just thinking of, I see that we're running on 45 minutes and that's fine. So uh, I often, this is sort of like an, an end question and, and I've often said that this is the most important thing. But before I do that, uh, you've flown so many types of aircraft that I'm, I'm, I'm simply interested in knowing if, if you have any uh, favorite aircraft to fly. Well, the, the favorite is, is obviously the Spitfire. Uh, it's. Uh, I think uh, it's more or less like love at first sight, and uh, I know it's going to be that way uh, for the rest of my life, whether I fly it or I just have flown it. So um, there are a lot of uh, ambitions, and um, uh, I would like to to be more involved in this um, community, but but it, uh, I don't think any aircraft is going to impress me more than that. And I guess with the, with the history and, and the flying qualities, it's just uh, a very good mix. And, and speaking of, of, of Spitfires, and because, uh, you know, there is uh, PL258 and the restoration that kicks in, and uh, recently we've been given uh, uh, a considerable amount of money to uh, to restore parts of it. And and what's your hopes and thoughts on on PL two five eight? I I hope it will be a, a national symbol of um, of our uh, aviation history and the achievements made made by uh, Norwegian personnel abroad during the war and also after the war. 
um, uh, it's uh, been a, a very important backbone of the of the foundation of the Norwegian Air Force. Uh, so uh, it's quite a, uh, an a achievement to 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 have this project and to to see it go move forward. Uh, and uh, I hope that um, more funding is is coming across and uh, that we can see this project to its end, which is an airworthy conditions uh, condition uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and the public can see uh, and touch and feel uh, Norwegian uh, aviation histori history and uh, and be aware of all the achievements being made in the past. Mm, which is very important and I think we've, we've as NSF, I think we touched upon a nerve by combining, uh, you know, the historic part and the history and the sacrifice and doing that and and, and showing uh, the public something flying and something they can see and touch and feel, which is, you know, the, the key to, to our success, I think. So, yeah, yeah couldn't agree more with you. Um, mm -hmm. One, one uh, last and one important question. Um, what type or mark of Spitfire do you prefer and why? I, I like the one I'm flying now, which is the Mark 16, because uh, that was the very first Spitfire I built as a kid. Um, a, a small matchbox model, and I thought every Spitfire looked like that. I discovered uh, later on that uh, there's a variety of models and marks uh, but um, uh, the picture of this aircraft on the on the front of the of this little tiny box has just uh, sort of uh, made its way into my brain, and uh, so so that's the ultimate Spitfire for me. It's uh, it's sleek, it's bubble canopy, uh, it looks fast, and it, it is fast. Which also remind me, so we should just have to do a bonus questions because you do operate. Uh, a Spitfire and a Mustang uh, for Biltema. So, yeah. so just just an, as a bonus, how, how did that happen? Uh, suddenly there were two warbirds in, in Norway again, so. Yeah, it, it, was, um, uh, it was a bit, a bit of surprise. Um, there were some change, uh, changes in Biltema and um, um, actually we, we just got a plain question if we wanted to continue the operation from Stavanger and, and we accepted. Uh, it's very, very uncomplicated matter. Um, and uh, and uh, the answer was not complicated either. <laughs> so so you're I'm sure you're hoping to bring those those warbirds back on the war on the air on the airshelf scene um, for the future. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Good. Uh, any any last thoughts from you before we uh before we stop talking and, and I have to publish this very soon because I, I'm sure people are dying to uh, to listen to this. Yeah, yeah. no, uh, no final thoughts. I, I hope that people um, wants to to be acquainted by the Norwegian Spitfire Foundation and the work being made by all team members and um, uh, all uh, all persons involved matters in this project uh, and, and the visions of the organization. So, so I, uh, I think we, we, 
wish everybody who wants to get involved uh, a warm welcome and um, uh, to take part. And and thank you, Espen, for taking uh, time and to 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 talk to uh, this podcast. And thank you for sharing uh, your thoughts on on flying and uh, and everything everything else. So uh, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Toledo. Okay. Stay. I'll see you soon. All right. Bye. Okay. Bye.